So again, let yourself um, sit at ease and listen not so much to remember anything that's said, but at best to sense if something resonates with what you know to be true in your own experience, in your own heart. And that part is good and the rest you can toss out and compost. I'll start with a couple of lines of a poem um, for those of the the literate among the crowd here. One that April with his Shurisota, the the drut of March hath pierced to the rota. Does anybody know where that's from? Chaucer Canterbury Tales. Yeah, thank you. And I remember hearing it read to me the first time, and it was beautiful to hear this, this old language of, of spring coming because it's the beginning of the pilgrimage season. And I'd like to speak about spring in some way tonight as related to meditation, which we just did, and to undertaking a path of spiritual practice. And of course tonight is a, and this week is also um, a week full of um, spring symbolism, if you will. Um, It's Easter week, and Easter, of course, is the celebration of death and rebirth, not just of Jesus, but really the the Easter egg is the symbol of the world egg, of the rebirth of life. Um, And tonight is also the first night of Passover. Um, We should have had unleavened cookies, I think, for, you know... (laughs) those of you. um, And when you go to a Passover Seder, one of the things that's interesting, if you've never been to one, is that it's always done in the first person, in the present. So the story of being slaves in Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and so forth is told um, in the first person, I was a slave. I was in bondage and then I was liberated. Um, And so we've often had Easter on some retreats that we teach, and we'll do a little kind of Buddhist, Buddhist-Jewish little Seder, which is, you know, there's the bondage that we all know of ignorance and fear and confusion and the possibility of liberation. So it's spring in all these different forms and, and languages and guises, if you will. Um, and there are really two expressions or dimensions to spiritual awakening. Um, One that's simple and immediate is that the goal of practice, Suzuki Roshi said the goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. But another way to describe this is the, the goal is to live in the reality of the present. And it doesn't mean you can't plan appropriately or remember things that are important. But there is only eternity. There is only the reality of the present. And when you learn to rest in a connection with the present, as, as I like to say, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. There's a sense uh, of being able to navigate and, and live from a place of complete ease or centeredness. And we all know it. We know it from our own experience in different ways. We've tasted this sense of completion. Sometimes it's listening to a great piece of music or walking in the mountains or making love or, or the completion of some work that you've done or a piece of art or something where you just feel like, okay, things are actually in harmony as they are. Even with the difficulties, even with the imperfections of the world, There's some sense of a greater harmony even with joy and sorrow and gain and loss. You know what I mean? You do, actually. And so one dimension of spiritual practice is to come and live in the reality of the present so we can see the lavender light in the just the end of the day when, you know, the sunset is starting to happen or reflected since it's still been raining a little bit in the puddles and the, 
you know, in the street as you go by. Um, so we can see the eyes of the people that we live with um, or the blossoms of these spring trees. You know, they go through their cycles, first the early plums and then you get the crab apple and now there's still blossoms on some of the apple trees. It's beautiful. So that we actually live our life And there's a kind of profound liberation in this. But, Suzuki Roshi, again, Zen master, put it this way. He said, you're perfect just the way you are. That's his first phrase, which is this expression of perfection. It's not that you're supposed to fix your personality and sit in meditation as some form of alternative therapy, you know or some grim duty that you're going to make yourself better, like going to the gym and all of that, that you actually are perfect and you can live in the world with an open, open eyes, open heart. But then he added a second sentence to that. He said, you're perfect the way you are and there's still room for improvement. And that's kind of the paradox of it. That as we live more in the reality of the present, in our bodies, in touch with feelings, connected with others, sensing the play of the world and offering ourselves as best we can. It turns out that it helps to train ourselves, to practice, to nourish or develop or plant seeds um, that allow this presence and compassion and openness to become stable or steady or accessible or alive in us in a fuller way and not just in those moments when we're in the mountains or on vacation, um, but really to live from this reality. And it's that second dimension that I want to speak about tonight because where we're going, whether it's you know expressed as this present moment Um, because this is all there is, Um, or whether it's expressed as this beautiful cultivation. Um, This paradox has to be felt in your life. What is is it that I know deeply is possible of being present, loving, awake, connected? And then what nourishes it? So there's a, a famous story from the time of the Buddha, in which the Buddha was wandering with his begging bowl um, through the fields of India, and he came across um, a rich landowner, a a Brahmin, um, who had many acres and was, uh, at this particular time, was harvesting the food and distributing the grain that was uh, being harvested to his different workers, as well as giving them a meal. And when this rich landowner saw the Buddha coming with a begging bowl, he somewhat despised beggars as people who didn't do anything of value. And he said, hey, listen, monk, you know, you come for alms. I plow and sow the fields, and having plowed and sown, I eat. You also should do something worthwhile with your life, you know, and plow and sow, and then you should eat. And the Buddha said, oh, to the Brahman, oh, landowner, I also plow. And having plowed and sown the field, I, I eat. And the landowner, Brahman, said, you claim to be a plowman, but I see nothing of it. Tell me. And the Buddha replied, this is the plowing I do. Trust or faith is the seed. Composure is the rain. Clarity is the plow and yoke. Compassion is my guide pole. And my mind is the harness. Mindfulness is the plow blade, well guarded in action and speech. I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is the oxen drawing the plow toward freedom without regret. This is how I plow. And it bears as its fruit liberation, the freedom of the heart. Whoever plows in this way will become freed from sorrow and distress. And somehow in responding that way, he also looked at this fellow and said, this is the fruit. The fruit is the stillness, the peacefulness, the steadiness. 
And as the story goes, the man said, I see. I see, may I make an offering? And he started to pour this milk rice, kind of liquid food, into the bowl. But when he did, it hissed. And this tremendous steam. Um, and and uh, he sort of stepped back. Um, this is the way the story goes. And, and the Buddha then just walked on, um, thanked him and walked on. Now, why did it hiss? Anybody have an idea? Think mythologically for a moment, and literally both. Anybody? Hmm? Because it was hot. What was hot? The blade. The blade, exactly. That this is sort of the mythological language for saying if his begging bowl was his plow, if, if any of you have ever plowed or know what that's like, that as the, as the steel or the iron plow in those days cuts through the earth, it gets really hot by the end of, the, of a long furrow. And so this was kind of the symbol that the Buddha had in fact plowed his field to nirvana or whatever that particular fruit was. But you can hear in this very simple kind of poetic metaphor that faith is the seed and mindfulness and compassion are the, are the, the practices that are used um, and uh, and from this, um, um, and composure is the rain, and so forth. From this, beautiful things occur. And this is really what we do in a certain way. We practice, whether it's through um, sitting meditation or the trainings in loving kindness, the training in mindfulness, the, the cultivation of um, integrity in words and deeds and so forth, we too... Um, plant the seeds that bring benefit into our own heart. We're the gardeners of the heart, if you will. Now the thing about gardening or planting, for those of you who've done any of it, is that it's actually not that easy. First of all, it's a lot of work digging and composting and kind of preparing the soil and putting the seeds in. And then once you've done it, there are insects and there is drought you know, and there are different kinds of molds and fungus and mildew and, you know, various animals that get into the garden, the deer and the rabbits and so forth. So you actually can't just plant that thing in the ground and sort of say, okay, all done. You actually have to tend what's alive. And in the tending, then something beautiful comes. And so in a way, what I'm just saying tonight, and I'll tell different stories, is an encouragement for you to trust that when you plant beautiful seeds that they will grow if you tend them. That you, to trust that when you practice in meditation and when you practice mindfulness and practice loving kindness and cultivate a sense of presence in the body or an attention to feelings or an attention to one another, that it starts to change your life. And you're able to live in the present in a more full and liberated way. But you will have obstacles. And it's just part of the game. You know, for most people, spiritual life is one of planting certain seeds and setting a direction. And then encountering obstacles. Um, you do it in business, you start a business, then there are problems that comes, you know. There's not enough capital or a key employee quits or the market changes, you know. Your supplier gets bought up, the competition gets stiffer, and you have to deal with one obstacle after another. The employees fight with one another. You know, the interest rates grow up, go up. Or in parenting, you know, they're sweet little things, right? And then, you know, they start whacking each other with blocks or trying to run in the street or putting the wrong things in their mouth, you know, or getting hurt when they fall off their bicycle or <clears throat> they become adolescents. <laughs> and then they have to deal with puberty and sexuality and, and cars and drinking and stuff like that. I mean, it's one obstacle after another, isn't it? Not to speak of what school they go to and all of that. Or in a love relationship, it's the same thing. You know how it works, right? You fall in love and then there's the other stuff. 
and in social change. The injustice of the world, the continuing warfare, the racism that's just insane, the environmental destruction. If you want to make a change um, and you devote yourself to it in some fashion or other, sometimes it works well and things go along and you know you're able to make some measure of change. But other times, as Thomas Merton says, I think I read this last week, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless at times and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you understand this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And sometimes that's all you can do is live in the present, you know, and whether it's the healing from cancer or the caring for a person that you love or the situation of injustice that you're trying to right, and you do what you can do, it's not given to you the results to determine the results. It's given to you to tend the garden and see what will grow. And by setting that direction in a thoughtful way, um, you actually are creating the future. I remember hearing this story from Gregory Bateson, who was a woman teaching down in Esalen 25, 30 years ago with Gregory and various other people at these seminars. And um, he was one of the ecological systems thinkers, visionaries. And he said, in Oxford University, one of the earliest colleges there, dating back in the early 1600s, is... Uh, um, I don't know which college it was, Madeline College or one of them, but anyway, um, there was this great dining hall that they created for the college, and it had huge oak beams that were four feet across and you know, 80 feet long or something like that. And it happened in the 1960s that the caretakers for this college at Oxford discovered that the beams had dry rot and that there was, you know, a problem. They were holding up the roof. They needed to be replaced. But they said, all right, you know, in in the 1600s, there were these enormous stands of oak trees like the redwood trees we had now. But where are you going to get beams like that now? And somebody who was wise said, well, speak to the college forester. And it turns out when Oxford was endowed by whatever king or queen there was at that time in England, they were also granted certain lands in the more distant parts of England and Oxford forests were planted. And the architects and builders of that great hall had at the same time planted a special grove of oak trees in the 1600s because they knew at some point that they would need to replace those beams. And I'm speaking with the college foresters. They said, oh, yeah, we've been waiting for you (laughs) for a few hundred years. We've been waiting for you to call. (laughs) Um, And in fact, we have just the trees that you need for these beams. So there's something beautiful about living in the reality of the present and at the same time planting the seeds in the present for what will blossom in the future, no matter what it is that we're doing. Buddha says, as a farmer channels water to his land, as a carpenter turns their wood, so the wise one directs their heart and mind. Compassion, loving kindness, attention, mindfulness. Of course, it's not all that easy. You sit and meditate, and even in an evening like this, you get quiet and the tension in your body shows itself. Or if you haven't been quiet for a while, maybe the unfinished business of the heart comes. The tears, the longings, the things that you've been running around so much that you haven't actually felt. Or the conflicts in your life and so forth. And they're not really a problem. They're part of the process itself. Hmm. Which story? Okay, this is a Tough one, good. Um, Darlene Cohen, who was a Zen teacher, friend and a 
wonderful Zen teacher who died this year, um, uh, had uh, rheumatoid, pretty severe rheumatoid arthritis for 30 years, and wrote a couple of very fine books on dealing with pain as a focus of meditation, because she had so much of it over these decades. And then she died of cancer. And she writes, she says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from, because she had this beautiful healing spirit in spite of the crippling arthritis and pain. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down in that, into that muck again and again and am then flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then it tugs, its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. That's an important sentence, you know. It becomes harder in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I am caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First, peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist when it hurts so much. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else like purification or renew or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation and loss in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist it until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. And so when people come on retreat in meditation and they sit and they face at times the trauma, the fears, the unfinished things, the overwhelmed anxiety and so forth. Instead of saying, oh, your meditation isn't going well, you know, let's try and figure some way to move out of this. I really trust this process and I trust that our capacity and their capacity to stay present like the winter that's going to turn into spring, like the composting and the plowing and the digging in the garden is the very thing that's going to deepen their compassion. The poet Ghalib, the love reading Middle Eastern poets, these days it's fabulous, all those Middle Eastern poets who are springing up in the streets. Travel far enough into sorrow, he writes, and tears turn into sighs. When, after heavy rain, the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? And so this is Ghalib's way of saying what Darlene had to say, that it's part of the gardening, it's part of the tending, of tending to what's difficult in us with the same compassion and care as that which is beautiful and luminous, equally so, and trusting it, trusting that if you stay present in its own way, in its own time, something new will be born, because it will. The poet Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. You know, it's a very hopeful poem for environmentalists and people concerned. Uh, And well, we might be, but there's some unstoppable force of humanity in us, of life force itself, that wants to renew itself. And what it takes is the reign of our attention, you know, as the Buddha said, this is the, this is really the inner gardening. 
and the devotion and the dedication. Now, sometimes it turns out that the things that we think are really the problem coming from the outside in our life are really solved from the inside. So that, let me see which page this is on. In the movie with John Travolta um, called uh, Phenomena, the character Travolta plays is trying to do everything to keep this pesky rabbit out of his garden. He's put fencing that goes down three feet and still everything he plants is nibbled through. Suddenly he has this revelation. He wakes in the night and realizes he's been going about it all wrong. And in the moonlight, he quietly goes to the garden and opens the gate and just sits on the porch and waits. And to his surprise, as he begins to fall asleep, the rabbit scurries out of the gate. And what he'd been trying to keep out, the rabbit, was trapped in the garden. And he was inadvertently keeping it in by all his efforts. Do you understand, you know? Sometimes we just have to sit quietly like he did in the moonlight and open the gate and see what wants to get out. It's not like you have to wall yourself off from the world. There's a beautiful story from Lynn Twist, who's um, a philanthropist and a global activist. And she led a group that was working with... uh, communities that had um, food, food shortages and starvation in different parts of the world to Senegal because she'd gotten, their group had gotten this letter from this whole group of folks that lived out in the Sahel, which is the Sahara part of the um, Senegalese desert that reaches into the, into the Sahara desert. And it was this whole series of villages, a whole community that was losing its water. And they were having to close up their villages and move into the towns and shanty towns without any work. And So in response, hearing what was happening and getting some information, Lynn and a whole team of people went out in all these Land Rovers and drove and drove and drove and drove right to the very end of the populated part of um, uh, the land just where it meets the desert in the Sahel. And it's a Muslim country, although women were covered, but in these beautiful African kind of flowing boos I think they're called. And, um, anyway, they were met by the drums and the elders of these village, and they said, you know, there's, we've lost our water, and the, the government won't help us, and we don't know what to do, and can you give us money to buy food, at least for our children? And they were in a lot of despair. And Lynn said that their group decided that the best thing that they could do would be to meet with the women. Well, this didn't go over very well with the Muslim elders. It's a little pecking order there, apparently. And so it took some bribery in the agreement that they would be delivering some a Land Rover and some other things to the villages. And then the older men said, okay, you can talk to the women now, right? Sometimes it takes that, I guess. Anyway... um, And she writes, when she sat down with the women in the circle, the women said the men, (laughs) I'm sorry, the women said the men won't listen to us. (laughs) I don't know why I find that funny. I guess it's just so universal. (laughs) And she said, well, what is it that you have to say? And they said, we've had a dream, several of us, that there's a great underground lake. If only we would be allowed to dig. But digging is men's work and the men don't believe our dream and don't believe the elders of these women. And so again, with a little negotiation and some payoffs, um, she arranged, they arranged for the women to be given some tools to dig. And it took them a year and a half, mostly digging by hand with the men drumming and, you know... (laughs) watching dubiously and in the end at the bottom of this huge pit that they dug in the desert they found this underground water that they'd seen and since that time they've built 
um, water towers and system and pipes and um, reestablished or saved 26 villages that were all going extinct. All because they took the time first to listen in some deeper way and then to trust that vision and to dig and to stay with it. Even in spite of the dubiety of some of the men standing around. What matters is what we tend to. What we tend to changes our heart, changes our nervous system, changes the world. And we have good seeds. These are called your Buddha nature. And it doesn't matter by, the Buddha said, by race or caste or class or whatever. However you were born, you were born with the seeds of beauty in you, of your own Buddha nature. And so you tend them and you develop and you in some ways strengthen them through your stillness, through your meditation, through your compassion practice, through the practices of virtue, of speaking truthfully, caring for one another. We plant our seeds. As the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, so let the wise ones wander, bringing harm to none and blessing to all. Or like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. Also words of the Buddha, encouraging this nourishment, this development, this tending. Now one of the things that's important to keep in mind as we tend the garden of the heart is that the idea isn't to make a perfect garden, sort of the house and garden, you know, magazine ideal photo of it. Um, There'll be compost and weeds, and that's how it works, actually. You know, it's like the little girl who was on her way to kindergarten. Her mother was driving her to school. Her mom was a doctor and had her little doctor's bag in the front. The little girl was sitting there, and she took out the stethoscope to play with. And her mother was driving along thinking, oh, how sweet, you know, maybe she's going to be a doctor like me. And she had all these fantasies. You know how parents are, or they can be anyway. When she grows up, she'll go to medical school, and she'll be, you know, just like her mother and all this stuff. And then the little girl took the the kind of listening end of the stethoscope up to her mouth and said, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? You know. I mean, we have all these ideas of how our kids are going to be or how the garden is going to be or how we're going to be. And that's not how it works. The weather changes and the bugs come along and all of these things. And the point is to actually be present for what is. And in this moment, in relation to what is with things that are very difficult and things that are beautiful both, plant good seeds, tend to what's beautiful. Not in an idealistic way. My friend Ajahn Sumedho, a a wonderful teacher and abbot, said, we're always looking for the perfect conditions, the perfect monastery, the perfect retreat, the perfect place, the perfect cushion, anything to, to, to get enlightened. The conditions for getting enlightened are perfect where you are. They're exactly the conditions you need. How better could you open your heart with compassion than the the very life that you've been given? So you don't want to be too idealistic about it. Um, There's a really interesting passage. Let me see if I can find it here. um, That I was reading about butterflies and caterpillars. And most of you probably know that when a caterpillar spins its cocoon and goes in to become a butterfly, that it doesn't just spout butterfly wings and then open the cocoon. Something much more extraordinary happens. What happens is that it liquefies, that the whole caterpillar actually dissolves into this living liquid. And then something even more interesting happens. Within that liquid that kind of cellular glue, some of the old caterpillar cells 
begin to mutate into what biologists call imaginal cells. It's a really cool name for a cell. Hi, you're an imaginal cell. Because the imaginal cells are the ones that carry within them the image of a butterfly. They carry within them the programming. Nobody can tell which cells are going to be that, but certain cells kind of wake up and say, hey, we could fly if we assemble this thing right. <laughs> you know? And other cells get in conflict if they watch. There's sort of a little conflict in there because the old cells sort of know the old way and these imaginal... But the imaginal cells don't even fight back. They're far too busy working on this, you know, let's get wings together here thing. And eventually... Um, they become triumphant. And they go about constructing a butterfly. Now, how they do this, no one has a clue. I mean, nobody can tell. The world is so mysterious. It is. But they do. Somehow they attune themselves to the intelligence of nature, to the intelligence of life itself, which is what you do when you get quiet and listen with the wisdom heart, see with the wisdom eye. You attune yourself to some deeper intelligence, and then, you know, any other imaginal cells around, let's try something interesting. You start to contribute in some way, and it turns out there's, you know, millions of other imaginal cells if you start tuning into them. Now, a few more things to say about this process of trusting or intending. You can't know the result right away. Um, This is from Annie Lamott. She writes, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour. The same eight words repeated over and over. And every line feels distinct, feels cared about and experienced fully as the nun is singing. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. (laughs) 45 minutes later, she's still singing each line distinctly word by word until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure with attention to each syllable as life sings itself through us. But that kind of attention is the prize. And so it's not that easy, and the nun probably did years of training, but there's something beautiful in the way we develop our attention to the actions we do, to the intentions in the heart before we speak or act, to the way that we move in the world, to the things that we care for. Now, while you do this, there will be other voices there will be voices that say, this isn't working, you know. You're trying to change, you know, the way you are in the world and just, you know, I don't see any difference. Maybe you should just go kick back and watch TV or something, you know, forget about this meditation or whatever kind of training you have. Sharon Salzberg, who's a a dear friend and colleague, talks about learning loving-kindness meditation in Burma from her teacher, Upandita. And she was doing this loving-kindness recitation, a kind of um, intention over and over, may I be safe, may I be well, may I hold myself with loving-kindness over and over. She said it felt really dry and stupid, and I was just saying it felt very mechanical and automatic, and I kept saying it and saying it for days and days and days, and, you know, nothing seemed to come of it. And she was getting more and more frustrated. And one day she just finished eating her meal and she, she, she sees herself as kind of a klutz anyway. And, you know, she put her cup and plate down in the wrong way and it fell on the floor and blow, broke. And she said, you, you know, you klutz in the most judgmental way. You klutz, I love you. <laughs> and she just heard that thought and she said, oh, maybe it's working, you know. <laughs> It does, but it takes its own time. This is a passage from a book entitled, If the Buddha Dated. You can tell what era we're in here. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. It's a 
it's a, it's a chapter on flirting, actually. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. Let the soil rest from so much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek the sunlight for itself. Too much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love we also have to learn to leave alone. And so there's a kind of sensibility in this of not pushing the river, but trusting, planting the seeds, doing what's, what you know is beautiful to do, and doing it over and over, and knowing that out of it something will blossom. But you're doing it in your mind tells other stories. You know, let's do something else. This isn't working. Um, the mind, in case you hadn't noticed, and you don't have to sit very long to notice this, is a completely unreliable instrument. <laughs> one woman who was on retreat, one of our retreats, finished her retreat, 10 days, and she went off to the airport to catch a flight and go back to wherever she lived, in Des Moines or somewhere um, in the Midwest. And she went to the little store in the airport um, to get a magazine to read, and she also got a bag of cookies. She went to the area, the gate, the boarding gate area, and sat down, and there are a few seats, and then a little table, and a few more seats, you know how it can be there. And she was sitting reading her magazine, bags there, and a guy sat down on the opposite side of the little table, and he opened her bag of cookies. (laughs) And she kind of looked over, like, whoa... And when she looked over, he lifted it up and he offered her one. Like, so at least, at least it was relational, you know, here we go. So she took one and he took one and okay, you know. And then he took another and he offered it and he, she took one. And it wasn't many cookies and pretty soon it was like down to near the one. He, do you want the last one? And she thought, what nerve this guy had, you know. And so I really could not believe it, right, all the judgments she had. But anyway, she got on the plane. They called the plane, and she boarded and put her bag up on top and her purse underneath it had the things, her magazine, so forth. And when she opened the purse where the magazine was, she saw that in there was her bag of cookies. He had bought the same bag of cookies. And she, who was (laughs) taking the cookies, turned out to be the culprit in this particular story. You know, so we have all these ideas... Right? You've noticed that, haven't you? About whose fault it is. That, those ideas, remember? And so forth. So what do you do? You notice embarrassed, humbled, yet again, how many times? You breathe some. And you just keep planting good seeds. You just say, all right, here. It's like Kathy Sneed, who is a activist who um, arranged for the prison garden in San Francisco. San Francisco jail, county jail, used to have a huge garden um, and farm that was worked in the old days, and then it sort of went derelict. And she, somehow in the 80s, got enough community money to get tools together and go in and teach these guys how to garden. And she said it just changed their lives. You'd see these guys who were, you know, ex-gang members and guys who were in there for a long time, all tattooed and, you know, big working out with their weights and things like that. Hey, man, don't step on my little flowers there. And, you know, those are my plants. And it was like the garden, because they had something that they had to care for, that whose life depended on them in such a place, meant so much to them that actually some of these guys, when they got out, were starting to commit crimes again so they could get back into their garden. This is true, actually. So that's when she started the outside garden project, so the inside one, you know, just a community... But it's a fabulous project. It's still going on. And the prisons are insane. I mean, these huge racist poverty prisons that we have for millions of people. Uh, no wise civilization would do this. It's, it is um, unconscionable and tragic and so forth. But there are people and visions and possibilities of change, and they're extremely important to do. As Spirit Rock is the genesis for the for the San Quentin Insight Prison Project that's now been spreading around the state. So it's just one of the many gardens that we need to tend in a new way.
And little by little things change. Tennessee Williams writes, the violets in the mountain have broken the rocks. The littlest thing starts to make an opening. And, you know, I saw it because there was Aung San Suu Kyi in prison in Burma for 17 years under house arrest and in prison in and out. Um, And she just remained committed to love. I will not hate you, she said, and I will not go away. And after 17 years, she was finally released. I was in Burma and it was, it was, um, it's such an important thing that she had that steadiness, not knowing if she'd ever get out. She was the inspiration for millions of people in Burma. When we are connected to this truth that how we act, how we attend, what we plant, will eventually bring fruit. We're connected to some deep, mysterious life process of the universe, something amazing. When a traveler at last comes home from a far journey, with what gladness their family and friends receive them. Even so, will your good deeds welcome you like friends, and with what rejoicing when you return from one place to another, or even one life to another, it says in this Buddhist text, the Dhammapada. You don't have to believe that stuff, but you'll see. You work it out later. (laughs) Who knows, right? We were up early to walk the botanical gardens in Montreal, the largest bonsai collection in the world outside of Asia. And it's a great big Chinese temple. We'd come there 400 miles away, and as we approached the massive gate, it was locked. It was closed. I panicked, wanting to demand entry after coming so far. My partner, Robert, like an oriental sage, treated the situation more like a koan, a riddle to be entered until its assumptions shifted. It was quiet. No one was around. He just looked at the gate for a very long time, and then he began to walk slowly the outer wall of the garden. It was huge. It seemed insurmountable. I was frustrated. Robert, what are we going to do? He kept walking slowly along the high wall. Since the garden stretched for acres and acres, I wondered if we'd have to walk the entire perimeter. The thought made me cranky, and he just kept strolling. Suddenly, when we had walked further than was originally in our view, the walls disappeared. It turned out that the garden had no walls save for the facade and the walls at its entrance. So we went, simply walked through the open grass to a path that welcomed us into this enormous and wonderful garden. Sometimes you can't know. It's like Braille in difficult situations, or even in your meditation, things are difficult. You just take a breath at a time, a step at a time, with the sadness or the grief or the anxiety or the vision or the, you know, confusion or whatever those things are that are difficult, or even the beautiful things that come. What do I do now? There's joy. Do I hold on to it? Do I let more of it come? You just feel your way through it. Maybe I can just relax and be with whatever it is with this too. And little by little, the sense of the mystery starts to unfold and you trust more and more. As Henry David Thoreau said, though I do not believe a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. Even if it's a thousand years, you plant the seed, something will grow. And so in this mystery of life, which is what it is, I mean, how, do we, how did we get born? How do we live in this human body that you have for a certain period of time with eyes and ears and tongue, nose, senses, and consciousness, this mystery of being conscious? Nobody knows really can explain it. But in this mystery, 
it's possible to live as a Buddha, to live with a wise heart in the mystery, to live with graciousness, to contribute beautiful things, to let go into the vastness of life and to allow it to flower through you. Even sometimes when it doesn't so well, that's okay, you keep going. So I read in the paper some time ago, some years ago, a story that I loved. Um, It's about the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee. Some of you may may have read about it. It was a woman who had some money and a great love of elephants and decided that um, she wanted to be the sanctuary or create a sanctuary for elephants that otherwise might have been killed when they had finished their, quote, service, which was old circus elephants or old zoo elephants. And so she started with 400 acres of good Kentucky bluegrass, and then it's now expanded since then. And she said, you know, give me your old, tired, poor elephants, basically. Emma Lazarus in the elephant world, right? Um, And people began to send elephants to her when they couldn't, work very well in the circus or the zoo anymore. And so she started to get a herd of elephants. It's still there in Tennessee. Kentucky, where did I say Tennessee? I think it's Tennessee, actually. I'm sorry. I'm, you know. <laughs> we Californians aren't that good with the geography in the middle. <laughs> no, it's not fair. Where is it? It's in Tennessee. It's not in Kentucky. Tennessee bluegrass, we'll call it that. Anyway, sorry to those from Kentucky. Um, But anyway, so a little herd started to develop and grow there. And then she got a call from the Baton Rouge Zoo. They had an old elephant, Shirley was her name, who'd been there for many, many years and too much to take care of and getting a little bit infirm. And they wanted to get some new younger elephants for the zoo and for people to visit and so forth. So Shirley was put on a train and shipped to Tennessee, now we know, to the elephant sanctuary. And when the elephants get there, um, they're not immediately released into the big park. They're put in a kind of holding pen for a time um, so that they can adjust to the place and the smells and the climate. And that holding pen has bars, and it's next to the sanctuary, so the other elephants can come up and look at the new visitor, you know, or put their trunk in and smell them or whatever they happen to do. But what happened as Shirley was there is this other elephant came charging up and started beating on the bars and trumpeting and doing all those things that elephants do and making a huge fuss and doing it over and over and over again. And the woman who started the elephant sanctuary became really concerned. And so she called back to the zoo in Baton Rouge. Was Shirley traumatized in some way? You know, what was the history of this elephant? And then, to her surprise, she found that Shirley had been in the Baton Rouge Zoo for 20 25 years, but for five years before that she'd been in a circus with the other elephant that was causing all the trouble um, next to the barred place where she was, and in fact it turned out they were old friends, and they just hadn't seen each other in 25 years, and they were just greeting each other, hey, you're back, you know, how was it in Louisiana, yeah, you know. They say elephants don't forget, and apparently they don't, you know, and we don't either in some way. I believe that the good seeds are not forgotten, that they, when they're planted, they will in their own time and in a beautiful way bear fruit. So you want to bloom where you're planted, which is here in the reality of the present, in the very life that you have. So many stories, but maybe just one poem. It's enough. Kind of encouragement for spring to go through the dark as you have in the winter, or you still have it some in your life, and it's still raining some too. But there's such a life force that we participate in that runs through us, that wants us here, that birthed us into this world, and that um, not only birthed us into a physical body, but also births us 
into the spirit, into the heart of knowing, into the Buddha or whatever language you want to use that you really are. And it's really the symbolism of Easter and Passover and all those things is a birth not of just the kind of concerns that we have of life, but that which is timeless and mysterious and unshakable and, and beautiful in your spirit. So this from Billy Collins called Today. There was a rainbow this morning, by the way, over Spirit Rock. It was quite nice. Last rains of this season. If ever there were a spring day so perfect, so uplifted by a warm, intermittent breeze, that it made you want to throw open all the windows in the house and unlatch the door to the canary's cage, indeed rip the little door from its jam, a day when the cool brick paths and the garden bursting with peonies seemed so etched in sunlight that you felt like taking a hammer to the glass paperweight on the living room end table and releasing the inhabitants from their snow-covered cottage so they could walk out holding hands and squinting into this large dome of blue and white. Well, today is just that kind of day. Let's sit for a moment. You can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in spring. And 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens, holding them to their skinny chests. And painters going blind, painting more, and composers going deaf, writing great symphonies. And as you give yourself to life, as you plant beautiful (coughs) seeds, so they will grow. Thank you for your kind attention, for sitting so quietly and behaving relatively well for a long period of time. It's great to have that in the group. Um, Thank you for coming to Spirit Rock. This becomes your place. Come walk the land when the sun is shining. Come on a retreat sometime if you wish. Next week, my beloved and dear friend, the great teacher Ed Brown, Zen master and teacher, Tassahara Bread Book, the the Zen Master of Bread and many other things will be here on Monday. Um, So have a wonderful week. Um, Happy Easter, happy Passover, good Pesach to you, you know, Easter blessings, um, good springtime, all of that. And remember to drive politely out there, please. There's a lot of people and it's dark. Thank you. And thanks for your generous donations too. Appreciate them.
Hey, how are you? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.